Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. Welcome to the 20th episode of Think Like a Game Designer. Before I get to introducing today's guest, I just want to take a second to acknowledge all of you. There are now over 25,000 subscribers to this podcast, which is way beyond anything I could have imagined for a deep dive design podcast like this. But it's been awesome. I've been able to bring so many incredible guests and have so many great conversations, and that's only going to continue. And I also want to tease something here, because in addition to this podcast and the book and the other tools that I've been putting out there, I have the biggest game design tool that I've ever made, that I've ever put together is going to be ready to launch very, very soon. So you can stay tuned to this podcast or you can sign up at justingary.com to the email list to learn more. But I really have been just trying to think of more and more ways to help you out there. And there's something really big and exciting that's coming. So please stay tuned for that. In today's episode, I speak with Elon Lee. Elon is an incredible creative. Not only did he launch the most back Kickstarter of all time with Exploding Kittens, But he's also founded an entertainment company, produced an alternate reality game for Nine Inch Nails. He was part of the team to create Xbox and was mentored by Jordan Weissman, who's also been on this podcast and is one of the most incredible designers and creatives and entrepreneurs I know. He created an award-winning Hollywood studio, and he even won an Emmy. So... Elon is such an incredible creative mind. He also worked on uh, some of the puzzles and games for the game Survivor, which I'm obsessed with, and we talk about a little bit. And we talk about all kinds of awesome things, including creativity, entrepreneurship, innovation, and how you build a culture that works. You can learn things like how graffiti on the wall of a military base restructured the way Elon thinks about communication. You can learn why nobody's job in Hollywood is to succeed or even to make money. And you could learn Elon's theory about why games shouldn't be entertaining. Elon's mind is incredible, and it was really great to get to talk with him. I've had a couple conversations with him now, and I really look forward to many more. And you'll also notice how humble he is. He's always very quick to be able to give credit to other people, all the incredible people that he's worked with and mentors and teams. And it's part of when we get into this discussion about building a culture, you can see why Elon's intrinsic goodness and compassion and kindness comes through. And I am convinced that that's a huge part of his success, in addition to being a brilliant designer. And so really try to pick up some of the subtext of what's going on here in this conversation, because I think even more than the great principles that he espouses, you can hear the kind of person he is. And in my experience, for anybody out there that wants to be successful in this industry, and frankly, any industry, it's that kind of kindness and connection that's going to get you the furthest over the long run. So there's tons of great stuff in here. Elon is an incredible person. I was really blessed to be able to have this conversation with him. And so I'm hoping you'll enjoy it as much as I did. And without further ado, here is Elon Lee. Hello and welcome. I am here with Elon Lee. Elon, I'm so excited to be talking with you. Thanks. It's really good to be here. Yeah, we only met recently through a mutual friend. We got to a little preamble conversation before, and I was, I, I constantly had to keep holding myself back from stuff I wanted to talk about because I wanted to talk about it here when other people could listen uh, and learn from it. So <laughs> I have so much stuff to cover with you. I'm, I'm really excited. 
Yeah. <laughs> a plethora, a plethora. Your background is so diverse and there's so many interesting through lines for it from uh, working at Disney and Xbox and starting your own companies and launching the most back Kickstarter of all time and pioneering entire new genres of games. And I, I want to touch a little bit on all of it as best I can, but I really also want to find a few principles and deep dives here that you haven't talked about elsewhere because I've watched a lot of interviews with you in preparation for this. And you really, and, and I recommend for other people, there, there's so much great content out there. You've spent a lot of time teaching. And so, yeah, I'm going to try to bring out some new stuff that, that hasn't been, cool. been talked about before. However, I will start with the cliche question because I start with it with everybody and I want I want to help bring things down to earth, right? Which is how did you get started in this process? What was the what's your origin story and and what kind of what got right. you going in this world? Yeah, let's see. So much of it is just weird random coincidence luck meeting the right people, but the short version is I studied computer science in college and that led me to an internship at Industrial Light Magic where I thought, oh, this is so cool. I get to make monsters and creatures and special effects and I just figured like I am as happy as a person can be and I'm going to do this forever. And then one day I got uh, connected with some people at Microsoft who said, hey, instead of doing that forever, how about you get paid to make video games instead? And I thought, well, that sounds even better. And so uh, I moved across the country to Seattle and got a job as a lead game designer on what at the time was called the DirectX box, because they hadn't settled on any yet. It was just a hardware platform around their software called DirectX. And so I worked with that team. Uh, we put out the first six games for the Xbox. And uh, that kind of started me off. Yeah. yeah, let me dig. Let me dig a little bit here because the I kind of met some people and they kind of invited me to be a game designer. Sounds sounds awesome, but my guess is that there's a little bit more going on there. So at Industrial Light Magic, I was I was just an intern there, but I got to work on some really fun projects. And uh, one of those really fun projects was uh, Star Wars Episode One, and uh, really. Yeah, yeah, you know, this little film where, let me, it's, it's worth at least saying what I got to work on because it's ridiculous. I got to do a lot of the chaining and stitching effects on Jar Jar Binks's neck. That is, <laughs> that is what the intern does. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they had this incredibly talented uh, team. The way Jar Jar was created, right, is you got a, you got a physical actor running around with a green bag on his head. And then you've got this incredibly talented team animating his face and all the expressions. And then... Sitting there like, this is going to be the most popular Star Wars character of all time. <laughs> I can't believe it. it's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Right. All of that. Every night. Yeah. Uh, but so you've got this incredible... Right? You've got all this motion capture, right? this incredible actor, and you've got this incredible team that's animating his face and, and expressions... And then someone has to, frame by frame, meticulously stitch those things together, or at least sit on the team to stitch those things together. That's that's the thankless, horrible work that you throw at the intern. And that was okay. All right. So you're doing you're doing the grunt work. You're you're earning your due. Yeah. You're getting, yeah, you're getting it done. Right. That's right. That's 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 me. And then um, I got written up in a little tiny blurb in an online magazine somewhere for like dream internships because I didn't tell them that I was working on stitching Jar Jar's neck together. Instead it was, I'm working on Star Wars. And that's, that's as deep as the interview went. And so uh, 
I had a friend who was working at Microsoft who uh, pointed them at that and pointed them at me. And so Microsoft called me up and said, listen, we, will you come over? At first it was like, to work on a card or, or to be, basically be some sort of program manager. And video games were kind of dangled in front of me a little bit. And I thought, oh, that sounds intriguing enough. I'm sure I can maneuver something. So I went and I interviewed, and the interview went really well, and they invited me to join the team. And almost immediately, I met a guy there named Jordan Weissman, who is my now mentor, but at the time just idol, uh, who's worked on everything. Like all the things that you love about geek culture and video games, Jordan is in some way responsible for those things. Yeah, and and my my audience should be very familiar with Jordan. If you are not, go listen to the interview I did with Jordan. Uh, It is, he is also my idol and is just, he is amazing. He has done (laughs) all the things and he has laid the foundation for all of our awesomeness. Uh, Yeah, he's incredible. What what an incredible opportunity. Yeah. Well, Jordan, Jordan sat down with me. I was, uh, he, I got assigned as the producer on one of his projects and Jordan's and we worked together for a few months. And one day Jordan, Jordan, who was the creative director for the entire Xbox studio, he looked at me and said, Hey, you're a terrible producer, <laughs> but, uh, you're an incredibly creative designer. And so I think we're going to switch roles for you. And we're going to fire you as producer and hire you as designer, and I'll take you to work on some games. All right, I gotta, I gotta, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I wanna pick things apart some more, be here, because, you know, there's a lot of which where the the surface version of the story is, hey, I got lucky and the right people found me and I got this job and then I got promoted and then things. But there's, there's, there's so much that's going on under the surface I can kind of see, right? You won to get the interview in the first place for this internship. Was that something that they just like came to you and were just like hiring things or did you, did you seek that out? How did that, how did that come Uh, about? Well, yeah, so, so they offered me at least the interview. I then sought out, like, I was very excited about that interview because I kept hearing video game console, video game console. There is something brewing over there, and I'm going to be roughly working for the entertainment group. So right. uh, so, so I, I pursued it. I, I prepped for the interview. I asked all the right questions. I joked around with the right people, and they, and they made the offer. Like, that, that was a really good, I, I will say, I gave a really good interview. Yeah, so let's let's give let's that maybe there's some principles out there. These opportunities show up and people either don't think that they can do it, they pass it by or they they just they don't prepare properly. When you have your shot, getting ready for it and making sure you make the most of it is absolutely critical. So, so let's say somebody else finds themselves in that position, right? They've gotten recognized yeah. or they find a thing and they get to an interview at, at a potential dream job. What kinds of things should they be thinking about to 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 prep for that or or, or to yeah, really sure. So what I learned right before that interview and what I've learned since in interviewing other people is there are two basic questions that you know are going to come. One vague and one for sure. Uh, one of them is about something that's gone wrong. And you know they're, they're not just going to ask you flowery things. They're going to ask you about the negative thing. Talk to me about the negative thing. If something goes wrong, what do you do? Like something about the train is going off the rails react or the train has gone off the rails, how did you react, right? You know that question is coming. And I prepped for exactly that sort of question so that when it came, I had a really good answer for it. And we talked, that led us into a lot of conversations about communication and best practices with communication and what's important. And 
what's always flying around in the back of my head whenever issues of communication come up, whenever project management comes up, whenever uh, organization comes up, is my favorite my favorite quote. I actually want to get this framed, and I saw it. Is what do you know? Who needs to know it? Have you told them? That's and the most important thing I have ever heard. I actually read it on the wall of a military base I was taking a tour through. And uh, I wrote it down because it was life-changing. So we talked a lot about that. Uh, when they talk about failure, I talk about communication. Yeah. Uh, and then what, the do you know, one, what do you know? Who needs to know it? Have you told them? that? I, I, yeah, I just want to pause. So that is... I, the more I think about it, the more profound that gets like that, like not just, you know, in the context of like interview employee, in the context of running a company, in the context yeah. of your relationships, that yeah. feels like such a powerful set of questions. It's, it's crazy. A little 16 year old niece who saw that written on a wall as it applied to the military. At first I just walked by, oh yeah, military, right. Chain of command. And then I like stopped dead in my tracks and was unable to function until I turned around and got a pencil and paper and wrote it down because I was like, this is everything. This is the secret to everything. So, uh, yeah, I've been carrying with that with me for 20 years now because holy crap. So, so we had that discussion and that's a mind blowing sentence. And it's a really good one to drop in an interview because most people haven't heard it. And, uh, it shows that you're very thoughtful and you're thinking through the right things, especially when, like I said, the train is about to go off the rails and you need to address it. Uh, and then the second one that you know is coming is the interview is over. What else would you like to say? Is there anything I should have asked? What, like the addition, right? Interview is over. There's no, another slot. And most people say, nope, we're done. And that's the only wrong answer you can give. So... I was sure that when they said, is there anything else, I had a really good answer lined up. And there, for me, in that case, I talked a lot about gaming culture and geek culture and what's exciting to me and what's not being addressed and the opportunity that I thought Microsoft had to jump right into that space and take charge because nobody was doing it properly. And like I said, it was a really good interview. Yeah, no, clearly. And then, so, okay, so great. And not only do we get some great interview principles, but but just a key you know, life and, and communication strategy principle here. So I'm happy we dug into that more. <laughs> now, now, now I want to dig into that next transition, which, which seems rare and that there's more going on from the, you know, you're not that good a producer, but I see amazing talent in you for the creative side. What came about for that? How how were you expressing that? What were you doing in your role that was going above and beyond in a way that, that Jordan identified? Um, so we were working on a game together at the time called... Oh, I'm trying to think if it was before or after Halo. Uh, I think it was a little bit before, and it was a game called Cartoon Mayhem. No, I've got this backwards. It's after. Anyway, we worked on a bunch of games together in one of them. I was performing extraordinarily poorly, and it was just a huge team. I was 21, 20, something like that, and things had just gotten away from it. It was just too many people and too many things going on, and there were like three different developers located in different parts of the world, and I kept trying to get on planes to talk to all of them, but I couldn't keep it all straight. It was a mess, and it was it was not well organized. But in the middle of that, one of the other things that was failing was the game design kept falling apart. And so I got to really step up and I got to write a bunch of design docs about 
what if we tried this? And what if we tried this? And here's the thing that's been failing time and time again in playtests. What if we fixed it this way? None of those are the responsibility of the producer. And uh, I just felt really compelled to, uh, to step in because we just kept failing at those things over and over again. And I think that was really what Jordan picked up on. I think he saw those suggestions and saw that I was really not managing the project well and realized that maybe he was just humoring me. Maybe that was better than firing me. <laughs> but it all worked out. We, 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 we solved for the game design, hired a better producer, and uh, saved the day. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's great, and and my guess is, I, I mean, I'm sure you had good answers there, and, and as a smart guy, but but what's more important there is that you were asking the right kinds of questions. That's what I'm always looking for in those situations, right? It's when there's a problem with game design, what is it that needs to be solved, right? What are the things that are happening? What's creating the experiences? What are the goals? And that the right kind of creative thinking really foundationally is about being able to surface those questions yeah. uh, and, and, yeah. and nobody, you know, getting the right answers usually takes iterations. It takes time. It takes a lot of smashing your head against the, the wall, but unless you know what you're looking for, uh, you're not going to get there. And so as a sort of creative, as a lead, it feels like that's, that's, I'm sure that's part, a big part of what Jordan sort of found in you and that, that taking that initiative when it wasn't my job, right? That's the other thing I've seen in a lot of uh, people, especially at big companies, right? And, you know, you're working at Microsoft, the, well, that's not my job attitude of somebody is is death it's like one of the, yeah. the most painful things for the purposes of a team working together and motivation you know if and then especially if you're on a small team right when when that that everybody sort of needs to feel like they have ownership of everything and take responsibility for everything and and that attitude seems like it was in your dna from the beginning yeah that's absolutely right uh, the other thing that i'll say that's really important to me a thing i learned at microsoft is there are two kinds of people there and I think you find this at any large company. There are those who have been there for such a long time that they've learned to be risk averse, right? Like any time they're taking a risk, they might fail at that. They're not going to get rewarded because Microsoft is set up as all large corporations. They're not actually going to get rewarded for success, but they're damn well going to get punished for failure. And so nothing is ever risked. And the other kind of person is the young and naive new hires, uh, or there's a few that have been there for a while, really, really embrace new challenges and opportunities to make huge changes. And luckily, Microsoft was able to build the, the very first Xbox team just absolutely stacked with people excited about risk-taking. I think that's largely why that, that platform, right from day one, was so successful. Everyone wanted to take a risk and everyone knew let's risk as much as we can because the opportunity for success is just massive. Yeah, this is a great place for us to 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 kind of pause and 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 dig in a little bit too because the number one thing that stops people from doing great creative work is fear. It's this constant fear of whatever kinds of failure you're perceiving, right? Whether that's the business failure or being disappointed and not, people not liking your stuff or people judging you or all of these things that that being averse to taking those risks of putting your work out there, of getting the feedback cycles, of learning, of feeling stupid is the is the barrier. And, it, and it's not a barrier that, that ever goes away for people in, in a sense, right? We're always afraid of the, whatever that next level of challenge is. So I, I'd love to dig into both how you 
view those things and personally, as well as, you know, in a company, how do you, you, you know, you raised a great issue that, well, Xbox or sorry, Microsoft broadly was structured as many corps are to reward you for not taking risks and, and punish you for taking risks and failing. So how can we structurally create our environments or businesses to, to encourage this kind of behavior? So both, both your internal drive for this, and then maybe how we set up systems to do, to do a better job. So my internal drive, the thing that I, I keep in mind whenever I'm starting anything new is all of those fears that you mentioned, I might fail, I might look stupid, uh, this isn't going to work, nobody's going to like it, everyone's going to ridicule me. Those are all true, 100% of them. They are absolutely true. And here's the thing, they are a requirement. Anything you do is going to fail. Everything you work on is going to have mistakes. Everyone is going to laugh at you. They're going to make fun of you. It's all going to be horrible. If you just accept for a second that is part of the process and that everything successful in the history of mankind has gone through that process, then it's not so scary. And if you can say, I'm just going to, knowing I have to get through all that garbage to get to success, Maybe the answer is not avoiding it, but just getting through it as fast as I possibly can. And to me, that's that's really been the motivating force, is saying, I'm just going to fail at everything as fast as I possibly can and identify them as failures so that I can move on to the successes. As long as I don't linger, then I have a chance of actual actual success. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's, that's wonderful. And, and, and I'd, I'd add it, you know, as you get more experience over time, you start to find when you can look back on those failures, you can see the direct line that those lead to those, to your best successes, the, the lessons that you take out of those failures, that these were sort of necessary steps to drive those points home and to get you to that next piece. And Absolutely. it's one of the reasons why I love to surface you know, failures and setbacks and weird starting points from all of these, you know, from famous designers and people who are, you know, huge successes, because it, I want to demystify that process because most people only see you the public success, right? They don't see the failures that have happened in the background. They don't see a ton of the work that's going on where you're just bashing your head against the wall and, have, and the projects yeah. that never see the light of day. Uh, and so I, I always try to, to just reinforce that no matter how many times people can hear it. And again, even for me, I mean, I, I love to hear it too, because you're constantly having to push yourself and put stuff out there that's public and dangerous into your own ego. Uh, and and it's, it's, a, it's a really powerful thing. I think, uh, you know, I really hope people take away from this. I hope so too. I, you know, to move on to the next thing, it's like, how do you build institutions that reward that kind of thing where, uh, where, where there is a culture of, of failing fast? I, um, it really hit home for me when I first moved from Seattle to Los Angeles to try to start a TV studio. Um, I, one of the first things I did was I wrote a bunch of scripts. Uh, I teamed up with, let me be clear, I teamed up with some incredibly talented, amazing, wonderful people, and we wrote a bunch of scripts. And um, we sold them. Turns out, we actually were very, they were good scripts, and we sold two of them. And they were going to go into pilot, and then some weird stuff happened, completely unrelated, but both of them got canceled before they went to pilot. And I got really depressed because these were things completely beyond my control. And I had an agent at the time. We were on track for both of these things and both fell apart. I don't quite understand why or what I could have done differently. And he said something really world-shaking. He said, said, what you have to understand is that nobody's job in Hollywood is to be creative. 
It's nobody's job to take risks. It's nobody. It's not even anybody's job in Hollywood to make money. Everybody's job here is to make sure that tomorrow they still have their job in Hollywood. That's it. And I realized, like, if ever there was a sentence that fully encapsulated this idea of nobody's getting rewarded for taking risks ever, no matter what, like, that's it. All of these people are just working as hard as they can to make sure that tomorrow they still have their job. No risk. I'm not going to get celebrated for success, but I'm going to get punished for failure, so let me make sure there's no failure. And that failure, on my part, having two consecutive failures within, like, three days, and, and hearing why it was, because nobody wanted to take risks, that let me almost immediately turn around and build a business plan for a studio that was going to absolutely remove risk from the process. I figured out a way to, to write a plan that said, here's the new kinds of shows we're going to make in Hollywood, here's why they're going to succeed, here's why they're going to be economical to build, no risk, no risk, no risk, everybody can sign up. And within a few months, we had an investor who put in $200 million into that, and we got to start a TV studio. But it was, it was learning from that failure, those two failures, and, and the source the source of them, uh, not to lean away from it, but how to totally lean into it and play within those boundaries. So I think like from an institutional point of view, you have two options. One is figure out how to lean way the hell into that because there are plenty of opportunities to succeed. And the other, of course, is if you can maneuver things to start your own company or work at a small company, always build a culture where success is rewarded. Way harder to find. Well, you have to do that one yourself. That's certainly uh, the, the, the way to always create big, beautiful, amazing things. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that the two things have to get paired, uh, not just sort of rewarding success, but the other thing that I have tried to do in my company, and this was a very hard and weird at first, is actually to celebrate failure also. I um, love that. that that we run into situations where we hit a wall where we're like, oh, wow, that didn't, we didn't, we totally mistimed that, that didn't get delivered there. Or this thing, you know, this thing went wrong. We dropped the ball on this. And then I'm like, okay, awesome. We figured it out. Now, let, wait, what do we get? To, we get a chance to learn. Like, let's get excited. What's, how do we, how do we make a better process for next time? What do we take away from this? And like Perfect. actually make it a positive moment for everybody that's involved has been a real game changer for us because if you're not failing, that means you're not trying hard enough. You're, you're really not, yeah. you're not pushing yourself. Yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> so again, very counterintuitive, very weird to, to start the <laughs> implementation of, uh, but it really, it really does matter. If you know that failure is a necessary part of getting to the, the higher levels of success, then you should be celebrating failures in the same way that you celebrate successes. Yep. Yep. Totally right. Everything so, about so, that is right. Let's linger on entrepreneurship here for a little while, um, because not that uh, many people would say. You, so you you jumped from producing to game design, for, uh, game design to to storytelling and and script writing, and then starting a company. Your first company was an entertain this entertainment company, and uh, what what yeah. what was going on there? What how did you get to the point where like yeah I can do this? Yeah I've got to, I'm going to build this whole business structure together. Like what what was was this, was Jordan kind of advising you around this stuff? I know he's been a serial entrepreneur forever. Like what what gave you yeah. the confidence and the path to go down and raise two hundred million dollars? <laughs> uh, well, that actually wasn't the first one. The first company I started was actually with Jordan. We had we had both been working within Microsoft 
and uh, building some really good stuff. You know, we've got the Xbox software and all kinds of really fun projects. And then we accidentally, hmm, all right, this is, this is a long story, so I'm, try, I'm trying to figure out the, the correct ways to not <laughs> let it take too many hours. Um, Jordan one day brought into my office uh, Steven Spielberg, because that's the kind of guy Jordan is. He walks around with Steven Spielberg, and he brings Steven Spielberg into your office one day. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So Steven Spielberg said, hey, uh, I've got this new movie coming out called AI, and uh, you guys have just signed a deal with me to do uh, a bunch of Xbox games based on that movie. And uh, Jordan then said, all right, and so, Ron, you're going to be the designer on six games that we're going to do around this property, and I wanted you guys to meet and uh, go get to work. And so uh, we did. Uh, we actually started building games. We built an adventure game and a puzzle game and a racing game and a fighting game and all these things. Each one took one little bit of, um, of the AI world and focused on it. And then Jordan said something really smart. He said, okay, well, we've got all these games, but what we need is some narrative thread to tie all of them together. Um, so let's create another set of characters that we'll put in every one of those games, but they have their own life. And uh, you will see them from game to game to game. And we started brainstorming that and thinking through what that might mean and where. Like, where does that live? Like, what do you do with that? And Jordan came up with this amazing concept. He said, well, what if, what if that story lived entirely digitally? And he said, what if it lived on websites and phones and fax machines? And we just like spread it out all over the world. And that <clears throat> kind of made my brain explode because holy crap, what an amazing, huge, world-changing idea that is. And so we started working on it and we called it the glue because it was going to hold all of this stuff together. And then we went and we saw the uh, screener for AI. We went to the movie theater and all the you know fancy executives were there and watch AI for the first time. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. Yeah, but, yeah, it's been a long time, but I remember seeing the movie. I, I will refresh your memory. The movie is about a robot, an android boy, like an eight-year-old boy, who <clears throat> gets adopted by a family who cannot have kids. And then one day they do have kids, and they basically want to get rid of the robot. The robot, though, wants more than anything to be human. It wants its mother's love. It wants to be accepted and embraced. And what ultimately happens is the family throws it out. They throw it out into the wilderness. It has no love, no affection. It cannot, it cannot, this poor thing cannot get its mother's attention until eventually it watches the whole family die and then watches all of human society collapse. It is heartbreaking and, and it makes you cry. And it's just, it, I don't know about you, but nobody walks out of that movie thinking, oh, I can't wait to play the Xbox games. Like, <laughs> sure. holy crap, what a mismatch. So yeah. so we walked out of there and canceled all six games um, because we realized this just isn't going to work at all. And so that was a painful day and really complicated. But yeah, that's glue. that that's. I, I know I know it's a long story, but I also just want I love to linger on these moments because that's got to be a difficult thing, right? You yeah. find that there's just a creative mismatch between these two. 
the world inside of Microsoft has to be pushing you towards, hey, we're making it's a huge budget film with Steven Spielberg. We're going to make these games. This is the process, uh, you know, to push those breaks and have the sort of courage to do that. Sounds like that would be a pretty challenging in that moment. Yeah, it was really hard. Um, however, uh, that was it was the right thing to do. Um, yeah. And so uh, so we did. But we still had this project, the glue, that cost that, that had no business model, right? It's not like it's not like people were going to pay to visit websites or answer phones. But it was this beautiful narrative that was like six months worth of content, and we had written it like a murder mystery, where you could discover piece by piece by piece, and it would string you along for six months. And we thought, what if? What if we went to Spielberg and Universal and said, or Warner, who was it? It's been a long time. Uh, and what if we went to them and we said, what if we release this thing as a marketing piece for your movie? And they said, sure. And so we did. And kind of inadvertently created one of the world's first alternate reality games, this new, new form of narrative. Um, and when we finished with that project, uh, Jordan and I really became enamored with this new form of storytelling. And so we resigned from Microsoft and started a new company to build more of them. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, if, if, if there was ever a, a, a better person to, to learn entrepreneurship and design and storytelling from than, than Jordan, I don't know that they exist. So that's a, <laughs> that's a great, a great way to get started. Uh, yeah. and, and so uh, maybe maybe I'll pivot a second from the entrepreneurship because I think there's that, you know, we've talked a little bit about about lessons for running that. But but here we're we're playing around in the edges of story and games. And I, I'd love to to discuss a little bit more because, you know, I I started off as a very kind of mechanics focused person, the, the play of games and building that tension into the design and having people kind of express their own identity through that. Uh, it was something that always first drew me to games. And then over time, I've become more and more enamored with the importance of the story, not just the emergent story from play, but the overarching story and the different, the medium through which you tell it and how that influences things. So I'd love to, you know, have you expound a little bit on how you think about that integration of story and game design. What is there one that's sort of always primary to you? What is the, what does storytelling through games look like relative to a more traditionally linear narrative? Um, you know, we can go a lot of places with this, but I'd love to just kind of hear, hear some of your initial thoughts on this. Sure. So I, I believe story is 50% of any video game you work on. Um, I think the other 50% is game mechanic, but the, the, I, I tend to look at it very skewed. I think that the game mechanic is simply a mechanism by which your story is delivered. It is half of the importance of the project, but I really do think of story as vital. And um, I've had a very a very different kind of experience with story than most, because most of the games, starting with alternate reality games and moving forward from there, most of the games and experiences that I've worked on that where, where I've got millions and millions of people going through this narrative that I've painstakingly crafted uh, to give to, to make them feel a certain way. If you look at them, they are almost all murder mysteries. 
And the reason is because for me personally, it, when you're writing a story, those, those initial scripts I worked on for Hollywood, those were not murder mysteries. Those were, those were classic narrative structure. They had a beginning, middle, and end, three acts. And some of them were comedies, and, and one of them was, was a drama. But they, they told the story of a protagonist going through a situation specifically designed so that when you go through that situation with them, you will come out the other end feeling a certain way, coming to a certain revelation, uh, and feeling good or sad or at least intrigued by the process. The problem with alternate reality games is you are the protagonist. And when you are the protagonist, I have very limited tools about what I can put you through and almost no tools about what I can make you feel. I can create scenarios. I can show you the right ending. I can play music when you get to the right ending. But how you actually feel is entirely based on your own set of emotions that you carry into that experience with. And that's the huge problem with alternate reality games. So I have to rely on a different kind of concept, murder mystery, intrigue. There is a mystery. There is something unresolved uh, that you and only you, and thank God you're here, only you can solve this thing. And hopefully the resolution of that process and the, and the, the hoops I'm going to make you jump through to get to that ending will hopefully simulate those same chemicals in your brain when you successfully resolve a normal protagonist's dilemma and take them to the end of the story. Fascinating. In games and in stories, a lot of it feels like it's all about this sort of creation of rising tension and relief of that tension, right? Whether that's a, a protagonist moving through, right? You have the sort of classic three arc story, sort of rising, things are getting bad, things are getting bad. Oh my God, they're as bad as they can be. And then, okay, wait, we get, we get out of it and we get this release. And, 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 and in a in a, a classic linear video game, you can generally do the same kinds of things, right? You're, you're, the protagonist is you, but you are a part of this sort of more narrative story. In a more classic, in something where it's an alternate reality game, you're creating that tension through these unresolved mysteries. That's that sort of lingering tension. And I am going through and, and unlocking the keys to that next resolution. That's giving me that, that tension release. And, and I find the same is true, right? In, in, in games, right? You're, I, I always said the sort of the, the heart of a game, the heart of your mechanic is where you create, where, what's creating the tension? What is the core tension of your game that's giving you that like, oh my God, is this going to happen? And then, you know, release of success or failure or whatever happens. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, once you know where that heart of that tension is, then you can play around in tons of places. So it sounds like even with your alternate, with these alternate reality games, you're, you're putting that, you're hinging that tension on this unresolved mystery. And then from there, if it's, if I want to make you, you know, go run to a payphone or solve this other puzzle or decode this thing, it does, it, it, to some degree that part, it almost doesn't matter because I know I can take you here and that's always going to tie us back to this. This is the tension that keeps you engaged and keeps you excited. Very well said. Yeah, precisely. Awesome. So, so I, uh, you know, when it comes to telling these stories and being a part of this, you know, you jumped from, I, you know, I'm, uh, I, you know, you sort of learned to program and you're scripting Jar Jar's neck to I'm producing things to a, now I'm a game designer and now I've doing games that also tell stories. And then you, you jump from that business to then saying, I'm just going to be writing scripts and I'm just going to tell stories directly. Like what, what was pulling you there to, to make that <laughs> yeah. transition? Um, I realized that, um, 
I needed, like everything that I was working on in the alternate reality space were marketing pieces because no one's going to pay for these things. Like I worked on a, a, a giant piece for Nine Inch Nails for their album called Year Zero. And it was glorious. It was so much fun. And we had so many millions of people engaging in this thing every single day. And we could dole out more story and they would eat it all up. And it was great. It was an incredible collaboration with bands and, and Trent Reznor. But what I realized is every night when I go to sleep, I'm actually not, I'm not making any money. Like I'm not producing anything that's going to allow me to feed myself tomorrow. It is only when I'm actually actively working uh, that I'm producing anything. And uh, because the very nature of alternate reality games is very temporal, right? You, you experience them in real time. And if you miss it, you have completely missed it. And so as a result, they can only function realistically as marketing pieces, promotion at a certain time in a certain place. And I became really dissatisfied with that. I thought, I, I thought it wasn't a very smart way to approach these things. And so I thought Hollywood has this at least a little bit more figured out. They figured out how to turn narrative into a product that people can consume over and over and over again. So let me, let me move to LA. Let me try my attempt at uh, my best attempt at that, just to see what that world is like. And that led to writing some scripts, and then eventually starting my own TV studio. Fascinating, and and uh, it would seem to me like the natural jump would be to make make games or video games rather than go to to scripts in Hollywood, since you've already you've been part of that process, you've been building games, you had relationships in that space. Was was there was that a consideration, or was it just no? I, you know, Hollywood's where it's at. This is what's for me. Um, it was really straight to Hollywood at the time. Game narrative, like traditional video game narrative, wasn't really scratching the itch for me. I felt like it still had a long way to go, and it did. Um, today, there's a ton of video games I can play that will make me laugh and cry and, 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 have, and elicit that response. But at the time, um, it wasn't really doing it. And Hollywood uh, was really intriguing to me because it felt like uh, no one has tried applying technology to Hollywood yet. And so when I say we started a TV studio, it wasn't, and, and if you remember, my, my goal is to say, like, this is a sure thing. Here's how we're going to do it. That was a mix of here are very traditional scripts that are easy to deliver, but here is a super cheap, fast technology platform that I can plug into this thing so that when you are watching one of my shows and you see a character on the screen pick up a phone to make a phone call, the next moment the cell phone in your pocket is going to start ringing because the character is calling you and you will have a conversation and the characters can send you emails and faxes and when you see a character walk by a printer or hold something in their hand, I can find the printer in your house, turn it on, and print out that thing. I can make the story happen in your life. I can use elements of your life as a canvas. And I can do that really easily and really cheaply. And nobody's ever tried anything like this in Hollywood before, so I'll bet I can get this thing started really quickly. It felt like there was more room there, more room for experimentation, for cheap, easy, low-budget, low-staff experimentation than there was in the video game field at the time. Got it. All right. Now that this is this is making more sense. I, I've 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 heard you talk about this in other interviews, but not not at this detail. So now there's this new interactive medium which you have 
key experience in that you're bringing to Hollywood of saying it's not just passively watching a TV. Now the character can call me. I can see things in my house that makes this story come to life and be more interactive than anything before. That's I can see where that now became this sort of very intriguing thing that to to build something new in in that space. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and wait, how long? Go ahead. Sorry. Please continue. No, I just want to know how long ago this was that this this you started down that road. That was probably ten, ten or twelve years ago. Okay, it sounds such a cool concept, but I'm not. I I, I apologize. I'm not familiar with it. I I've not had any shows where anybody called me. Yeah. Uh, but why isn't this everywhere? This it sounds was, so cool. I know. I know. It was short lived. Um. So two things happened. One is we released our first show called Dirty Work which uh, I loved. It had all the interactive components. Uh, it won a primetime Emmy. Like, it was, it was actually big. It was actually really well-received. Uh, and holy crap, here I am, a, a, a weird narrative computer programmer, and I've got an Emmy sitting on my desk. Like, that, that doesn't happen. And that is a very, very exciting form of acknowledgement of, yeah, you, you are creating something new and something important and a new way to tell stories. What happened next was we kind of realized, unfortunately, that in, in building our second and third show, that we, we hadn't identified the right kind of platform. Because, like all game mechanics, if you repeat them over and over and over again, your audience is going to get bored. And we were simply out of new ways to use this thing. We had, we had done so many cool things on that first show. Then our second show, it just didn't have enough room to shine. And our third one, it was just complete regurgitation of the same concept over and over. So uh, you do that enough times, and you're not winning awards, and you're not getting advertisers, and nobody's buying your shows, and eventually, alas, uh, you have to shut down that studio. Yeah. Yeah, so it was like there was this great innovation, but it maybe only had so much room to explore before it kind of fizzled out, and you needed to find something new. Yeah, yeah, it was really a shame. Like I, that was for me. That that was about a year of not failing fast. That was a year of failing very slowly, and it was painful. And I learned a ton from it. Um, but I, I really regret, in hindsight, how obvious those issues were. The fact that I, I spent somebody else's money uh, without acknowledging what the future of that might hold. I feel horrible about. So, so was it, I'd love to sort of get more explicit with those lessons, right? Was it that, you know, you have to be, was it not projecting far enough into the future to see the consequences being too in love with the product and not necessarily the value to the, to the viewer and the customer? What, what, what were the takeaways that, that, that you learned from that, that tough experience? Yeah. A little from all of those columns there. Uh, I think, I think if I had to put it in one sense, it was, uh, we, absolutely fell in love with the first product. Everyone we showed it to had an incredible time with it, and we had zero ideas for what to do beyond that. Yeah. You know, some of that... Let's play with this a little bit, too, because, you know, on the one hand... Uh, you know, being able to sort of project out into the future and see the consequences and be able to plan for what's coming next is really important. On the other hand, I also tend to think that if you try to think too far into the future, a lot of times it can be crushing uh, to your initial 
drive yeah. uh, yeah. to build things out, right? I mean, if I if I if I knew before I started how hard starting my company was going to be and how much work it was going to take to get everything done, I'm not sure I would have done it. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. like in retrospect, yeah. I'm super glad I did, but it was only because I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, yeah. So. I, I wonder, you know, I, I, you know, wisdom is all about uh, being able to hold on to, to paradoxes uh, and, and use them efficiently. But uh, may, maybe do you, do you feel that tension there or? Um, I, I feel the tension in a, in a slightly different place in that timeline. <clears throat> I think the initial idea was good enough to raise money around. It was a completely worthwhile show to make the, the audience acclaim, the industry acclaim that we received was merited. This was new and exciting. It is when we started working on the second piece and failing at it that we made mistakes. And the mistakes were we did not acknowledge quickly enough that we were failing at it. We just assumed that we would find the answer and we spent way too long searching. And I think there were better things we could have done. I think there were other avenues we could explore. We could have explored if we had not been so precious about the second one has to look like the first one. We have to right. keep building on what we have. And it's okay to think that for a little while. But when you think it for too long and you're not making any progress, you're failing slowly and you burn through all your money. And that is the actual failure. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, and that's that, that falling in love with your product and not, you know, the value you're providing to to your customers, your viewers, your players, yep. like, yep. and, and it's, it's so easy to do. And, and just tying this back. Cause I, again, I like to bring things down to earth and I, I don't know how many of our viewers are working on television studios, but, but it, this applies to no matter what you're doing, right? If you're working on a tabletop game right now and you're just in love with what you've made for that game, but you're not able to open up and listen to what players are saying and what things they're going to need from it. And it's not just about how clever your thing is, but the experience that they're having and building with your toys. Uh, and, and, and so being able to sort of zoom out in that way uh, quickly, uh, or at least, you know, <laughs> before too long uh, is, is yeah. really, really important. Uh, quick, quick is hard. I, I get yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly it. So um, I do want to get into tabletop game stuff, but while we're in the land of television, um, I, I've, I, I revealed a little bit of my fanboy on the last time we talked, but I, I'm also uh, really interested in reality shows as a <laughs> game concept. Uh, yeah. And I, I am personally a huge fan of Survivor, and I, I learned that you have been a consultant on that show and been uh, be able to kind of help build some of their games and challenges. Um, yeah. I want to talk... I want to talk a little bit about that, but I also want to talk about it a little bit more in the abstract and building as a game designer, building a, a, a reality show, building a game for an audience like that. And, and you know, I, I actually, even just as I'm listening to your story about about 42 Entertainment and your technology there, that feels like cool technology to apply to this space, too. So so yeah. how do you think about designing for for a reality show comparatively to these other things? And, you know, you can maybe tell some fun stories about about the work. Sure. <laughs> I should start by saying that I am obsessed with Survivor. I am one of those those people who's watched every episode, every season, like know all the characters. Uh, I believe that Survivor is the best game that has ever been on television, and uh, no one else has come close. Uh, so, with that said, uh, I have always been um, fascinated by. I've, I've really always wanted to be a contestant. Um, I've, I've learned that um, I'm now 
disqualified because I've actually worked for the company. That's <laughs> I would I would love to be a contestant, but the the surviving part of Survivor was yeah. always the thing that put me off. I love the game so much, but I don't want to sleep yeah. on the ground. Yeah, yeah, the bugs. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, but I uh, so I have a friend who uh, was is also a consultant on the show. Um, and his name is Miles. And Miles one day said, "Hey, do you want me to introduce you to that team? Because you're smart, you design stuff, and and uh, what they really need help with the team that he was working on was the challenge design team, right? The guys who build, who design, and then build all the physical challenges for the game. And I thought, oh man, hell yeah, so I'm going to be introduced." So, uh, so he made the introduction, and we got along well enough that they invited me to sit through um, just a two-day uh, brainstorming session with them. Like, literally two days. I mean, they, they, they broke for a few hours at night, but that's about it. And uh, it's, it was one of the best experiences ever. And while none of like my fully realized things were ever in the show, little tiny elements that I helped brainstorm, I got to see on TV on the, on the, the two seasons later. And it was amazing. Like, what a rewarding, incredible experience for me to get to understand, like, when I pitch something like, hey, let's build a Survivor Super Mario level, and here's what floating platforms look like, and they come back with, no, listen, this is Gilligan's Island. Nobody on the show has access to anything beyond something that Gilligan would have access to, and therefore we can't build that metal thing. Because think about it. Have you ever seen metal on the show ever? And it was like, oh, wow, so much thought goes into this. And there's such a, there's such a long Bible they must adhere to, um, which is invisible to the fans, but so important to the show being successful. And I got to learn all about that, and I think I got at least a little bit better at it by day two. Um, but in that process, I became uh, very, very friendly with them. And one of the people I met was the host, uh, Jeff Prost. And uh, we just kind of hit it off. And um, since then, over the last few years, uh, I've been in this just very fortunate position to get to not brainstorm challenges anymore, but um, I get to have conversations with him about what are the themes of the show? What are the bigger What are the bigger pictures that uh, we can that he can put audiences through and contestants through that will feel like something new and a new take on the show and each season being better than the last? And here's where I have to be super careful to say this is all Jeff. Jeff Jeff is the most brilliant game designer on the planet, and he doesn't even know it. And all I do is listen to his ideas and spit the same things back at him. It's just sometimes he needs to hear them from a different voice. <laughs> well, it's clearly been an amazing recipe and and what he's been able to make. But I I want to uh, I want to zoom it out and 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 again talk about some of the principles here. That one, uh, it's not you know this idea you brought up of oh no no we can't you know we can't have metal things here because there's this overarching story and theme that's going on that's invisible to the conscious mind of the viewer but is critical to the success of the of the of the show so and i think this is another one of those things that's just a, a fundamental principle of game design that there's you know a lot of that background structure and element and rules that you need to think through what's going to come across and what are the what is the you know the feeling you want to evoke and what are the rules you're going to follow to do that i think is something that 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 applies to 
to all different variants of design. Uh, yeah. And then and and then there's this. The other thing you you talked about is where where you know Jeff shines and what you're trying to do is to build these new experiences and new themes that feel like something different, but still feel enmeshed within the world. Um, I, I've recently uh, gave a talk on this sort of concept of building games that last, right? It's something that's, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Ascension this year. And so we've made 20 products. And so it's been this thing of like, okay, well, how do you make this new same but different paradox resolved and, and, and right. something and, and now survivor's been around for 20 years and has the you know that giant audience it's insane and it gets bad i you know i believe the last season was the best season yet like it's it's amazing yeah. and what i think especially when you're talking about something to a to a viewing audience and a tv audience that this sort of simplicity of being able to get it in just a few seconds get it when i when i talk about it at a high level but still have that execution and intricacy level to to pull it off and so i'd like to maybe what what is it about survivor that succeeds here or we can use sort of other examples when you're designing something like this where an audience has to be able to jump in how do you build something like that that keeps that comes across in the right sort of way. What, what, and, and maybe you can even t tie into when you say you've got two days of brainstorming with just a break for some sleep, what does the brainstorming process look like in the, in a world yeah. like that? Sure. Um, okay. You just made a statement that for most people ought to be mind blowing. And I hope it is, which is survivors in its 20th year. And they just had the best season they have ever done. Like who gets to say that? That is, that is insane on a level that uh, is just unprecedented in world television, right? Like, shows get worse over time, period. Somehow, that is not what is applied here. And uh, holy crap, like, you just have to be so impressed with the, the, the creative team, with the, with the management team, and this this organization that's come together to produce this Yeah, thing. yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've got, you've got a closer eye view than, than anybody I've spoken to. So yeah. What's the, what's the secret? So, how does it, how does sure. it work? So um, I, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you the secret, but I'll tell you the two aspects of it that I've seen. Uh, the first one is the physical brainstorming. They basically build a toy store. Like they have, um, they're really open to outside people coming in. Um, and we all sit in a room and people bring toys. They, I, I found this uh, this little children's toy when I was traveling through Taiwan, and uh, do you think there's some some challenge to this? Or uh, I went to Target and I played a new game and I decided to bring it in because maybe there's something to that. Or I just watched um, a, a, a different ultra uh, a different um, reality show from I don't know from Budapest, and uh, here was a challenge that I really liked, so I brought in a recording of that. And everybody just brings their toys. And uh, none of them are good because they're not supposed to be good. They're just supposed to be the seeds of brainstorming. And that's what's really magical about that. Um, you hear that thing, there's no such thing as a bad idea. Truly, they embrace that in that room. Everything is considered, no matter how ridiculous, uh, everything is, is, is embraced and they write everything down and then they start the process about that thing. Hey, everything about this toy is broken, but see that little hinge at the bottom? What if we attached a basketball hoop to that kind of hinge and blah, 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 right? It's crazy how it works because they are as open-minded a group as I've ever encountered. And so there's a lot of magic there. And the really important takeaway for brainstorming sessions 
um, just how fully they embrace that concept. Um, and also they invite others in. Like it's not them. They know that they've been at this for so long. They need fresh ideas and they need new toys and new people bring them in. So they do. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's great. And, 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 and I'll just I'll just pause briefly because like this syncs 100% with modern research on the best ways to ideate and innovate together. I've done a lot of work with the Wharton School of Business on this and we've run ideation sessions for, you know, giant companies like Google and Twitter and and it is like these first stages the the one thing that you didn't explicitly highlight but is there is that you know the, this always be exploring right pulling things from all kinds of diverse fields whether that's a toy or a, you know some other market or some other thing like ideas can come from anywhere and being open to areas that are especially out especially outside of your industry is key so everybody that's designing games out there you'd be looking for things from all other places of life then uh you know being open to the no bad ideas phase and allowing people to present stuff and, and engage with each other inviting in diverse views, bringing people who are not like you to share ideas and forcing those things to come together, uh, and then writing everything down and being able to sort of parse stuff out and find connections yeah. and find little pieces. Like every step that you described there is is absolutely critical. And so I just want to yeah. make sure people are listening and, and taking notes because if you are working with people and you're not following those steps, you are making yourself dumber. You are actually reducing ideas. You're actually compressing ideas, uh, and so so this is this is critical to success. So yeah, I just I just wanted to pause there because well it's so said. important. Yeah, well said. I'm gonna I, I should add one more thing, which is the thing they did that I didn't quite understand until later. Um, so uh, my friend who brought me into this, Miles and I, he had uh, an idea that was really good. Like everybody just fell in love with it. And they wrote it down, and they figured out how they could build it, and that it, it, that it was, in fact, buildable. And they wrote it down and uh, captured the whole thing. And so then they all go off to Fiji. And they go off, they'll need, what, 10 or 12 ideas, and they'll go off with 25. And I didn't quite understand why, because I was like, look, clearly you've got your favorites. You've, you've even got, like, 15 that you can build uh, and are ready to go and, and affordable. So, like, why are you carrying all this other stuff with you? And, uh, and I didn't understand it. And Miles' idea uh, never made it to the show. Many of his ideas have, but this one in particular did not. And when I when they came back after the season, I just asked about it. I was like, oh, I was really surprised to see that you know that thing we were all so excited about was on the show. And he said, yeah, we built it, and it wasn't any fun. And there's no way we could have known that until we actually built it people on the apparatus and so that's why we bring double what we need because there is this this x factor of we're now in fiji and it's x temperature and x humidity and we've never actually tested any of this crap so we need a bunch of spares huh. yeah yeah the, this the other fundamental uh piece of of design and, and and game design especially it's like you just you don't know if it's fun till you test it yeah. <laughs> you can have the best brainstorm in the world and the smartest people in the room yeah. and until you yeah. actually run a play session and see what happens you don't know <laughs> yeah it's 100 percent true and uh that was a really important lesson for me i loved i loved seeing that and then and then like there were no hard feelings at all miles was like oh yeah of course it didn't work. they built it and it didn't work of course that happens all the time it's like really all the time it's like, yeah that's that's how this this show works and i just thought that was so smart uh but it wasn't personal and fully expected yeah that's yeah that's great that's the other attitude we we call it you know sort of psychological safety in the yeah. in the 
brainstorming space where you know you're not going to get attacked for ideas, where you're not going to become so attached to your own ideas if they do get, you know, shut down or moved, you know, not not executed on. Uh, yeah. and, you know, building that culture is is critical to long term success and yeah. keeping people creative. Yeah. The the other thing that I think is really worth talking about, the, the second half that I'm exposed to is just the 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 brain of Jeff Probst. Um, and what he did, like I'll talk to him a lot about concepts, things that I'm excited about or he's excited about or things that he wants to try. And he does this one thing over and over again. It's kind of like his own superpower. Whenever there's a new idea, no matter how excited he is about it, whether he's come up with it, someone else has come up with it, he writes it down and then is able to read what he has written as if it is the first time he has ever encountered it. And in doing so, I don't know how he does it, it's this crazy superpower. In doing that, he is able to uh, instantly identify when something is too complicated because it's just too confusing for him to read and he doesn't understand it. Even though he wrote it five minutes ago, he suddenly doesn't understand it uh, because he's been able to wipe his brain clear and read it with new eyes. And in doing that, going through that process, he he just he's got this laser focus on the audience is going to understand this, they're gonna get it, and they're gonna get damn excited about it. Yeah, that is that is an amazing superpower. It, it, it's one of those things where, you know, as we sort of touched on earlier, you know, you fall in love with your own ideas, your own product, your own thing that you've created. And, and to you, especially, you know, and as a game designer, to you, it's all intuitive. Of course, I've, you know, this does this than this. And but to another person coming in from the outside without your set of preconceived notions, without having talked through their thought through everything like you have, it could be completely opaque. Uh, and to be able to get yourself into the headspace, uh, especially quickly uh is is yeah. really impressive oftentimes yeah. i'll have to i'll do the same thing where i'll write stuff down but i have to i have to leave for a while and come yeah. back to it to be able to get yeah. that same mindset yeah it's i it really is a superpower he, he is perfectly tailored to do this job um because he's just got he comes in with a skill set that i'm just in awe of like so many times we'll, we will have been talking about something that we're really excited about like totally works it's super exciting where, you know, it's going to change everything. And then the next day he'll say, okay, here's what we're doing. And I'll read a thing. And it's a completely different idea. And when I ask him about it, it's always the same thing. It's like, oh yeah, I wrote it down. I didn't understand it. Huh. It's like, man, that's crazy how you can do that. And, and what and what he'll go with instead is it a super simplified version or sometimes it's a completely different idea, but whatever's on the paper uh, is so digestible and so exciting he just he is good at that thing man so good at it yeah no i think i think it's a great exercise for people to try to to work towards uh even if it's uh, yeah i don't know anybody maybe that could pull it off but always being trying to see see those things with fresh eyes and and i you know i want to i want to you know transition a little bit here and praise you because i view you as having some of this superpower I mean, obviously, I don't I don't see your process on a day to day basis, but in the games that you're maybe now most well known for, exploding kittens and throw throw burrito, and most recently poetry for Neanderthals, these are games that have a amazing top line simplicity to them. That like I can just get them in you know a minute explanation. Uh, that have this enduring appeal, and and I I'm so impressed by that, and I think it, it's it's a reasonable sort of transition here because that's the key for building a reality show that millions of people have to be able to get what's going on on the screen, even if they're just tuning in right now. 
to you, you've been able to sort of build this into your your games. And I'm curious, what what is where's your superpower in this? How are you able to sort of filter these things that way? You know, so there's there's nothing you could say that would make me happier than that compliment. Um, so thank you for that. That's that's incredibly flattering. Um, I don't I don't actually know the best way to describe it in myself. Well, what I will say is, whenever I'm whenever I'm working on a new game, um, I rely very very heavily on testing. I test it with all the people around me. I send it to people. I describe it to people, and I'm, and I'm watching their reaction really, really carefully. I know that for my own part, I can't clear my head and read it with new eyes. I just, I just can't. I'm always in love with the stuff I write, so I have to rely on other people to tell me I like this, I don't like this, I'm bored, I'm not bored. But when I send games to people, um, I usually only send one question along with it, which is. The moment you finished, did you want to play again? Ah, oh, the best question. The yeah, best question. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's the only one I actually care about. I, I used to have a lot of questions, and then I realized I don't actually care about the answer to any of them because I don't, I don't know that I'm going to get the right answers or that you're qualified or that you're, you know, all this stuff. And who cares? Really, do you want to play again? And so uh, that question becomes really important. Um, we just released a game. Uh, called, well, as you say, called Poetry for Neanderthals. And that game is really simple. Like, so, so, so simple. It started out very complicated. It started out as um, essentially describe, you have to get your team to say complex sentences. The, I went to the supermarket and met a dragon and we shared lunch. We shared a hot eggplant sandwich together. I have to get <laughs> you to say that. And the way I have to get you to say that is by only using single syllable and I'll take 10 minutes to get you through that whole sentence. And it was really funny and really interesting, but, you know, I would always ask the question, all right, you, you played around, do you want to play again? Nah, maybe, right? Like, that's not what I'm looking for. So we simplified it and made the sentences shorter. Still was getting sort of maybes, simplified it more. Eventually, the game that shifts has one word on each card. I have to get you to say marshmallow. And I can only use single syllable words. And I'm now, that's a very short exercise, right? I'm going to say, you know, this, this white cube put on stick, put on, put for camp, right? Like something like that, right? And maybe you get marshmallow, maybe you don't, but I'm going to get through as many of those as I can in two minutes. And we're all laughing constantly and having a great time. And not only were all the tests when I asked the question, do you want to play again? Not only was it unanimous, yes. But one of the things I do is I ask for the games back when I send them out because I want to test with a bunch of people. I sent out eight of these things, and not a single family would send the game back, not even one of them. And I realized, like, okay, now I have a second level. Not only do you want to play again, but you're stealing my game from me. Like, you're not getting it back. That's <laughs> the awesome. Ul- the ultimate test. Did you steal this from me? <laughs> Did you steal this from me? Yeah. So uh, so that, that happened with 8 out of 8 on poetry. And I just thought, like, oh, man. All right. Let's push this thing out as soon as possible. So, uh, yeah. It just came out earlier in the year. And uh, it's doing really well. I'm so happy with this game. It's just it makes everybody who plays it start to giggle. Yeah. 
yeah, it's fantastic. I uh, as soon as again, I haven't I haven't had a chance to play yet, uh, but I I you know from what, just watching the videos, it was already hilarious. Just the one minute I'm in, I'm like, oh yeah, this is great. Uh, and, and so the let's I just want to dig into this testing process uh, some more because it sounds fascinating. So when you you have uh, some playtest groups and families that are out there that have signed up or that you you know you have connections to, you send them a copy of the game with written instructions is that where like what how does this all work you are you filming them are you getting you know what's your test process look like yeah so we we try to keep it really simple we will send uh, a family a prototype um by the way if anybody wants to sign up just go to explodingthings.com and there's a little button click the button uh and so we we send the games out and uh all that we ask is that they film it and uh, we don't care how boring the videos are, um, but we really watch the entire playtest sessions. And we either send instructions and ask them to read the instructions out loud, or we send them, if we're trying to test the instructional video, we'll give them the URL for that and have them watch it. And all we're really looking for is we want that video back, and, <laughs> and we ask our one question, and usually we want the game back as well, but now apparently we got to change our policy a little bit. <laughs> um, but, but we're but we're testing casual party games, right? So like we're not looking for uh, hey, play the game three times and tell me about the strategies that emerged. We're not asking for balancing issues. Um, all of that stuff I find tends to come out in that video. If I've got too many of one card versus another card, I don't need to ask that question. I can watch you play and watch people say like, oh man, another one of those? Like when I hear that, I know, all right, we got a balancing issue, we gotta hit that. So yep. I I try to keep the questions almost non-existent. Yeah, that's great. Especially yeah, for that that category game. One one of the best experiences I ever had. I mean, also most painful uh, was being able to do some of those one way mirror tests with uh, yeah. the Bakugan game when I was working on that. Like, and it's with yeah. kids, you know. So you've got like eight to ten year old kids, and you know, <laughs> I, I try to make this as simple as possible and straightforward. And you just watch with them, just to just completely destroy your rule set, <laughs> completely ignore everything you're doing. You're like, okay, well that's not going to work. And yeah, and so I learned I learned so so much. Uh, from that process so whenever you can separate yourself from that situation and for those of you out there that don't necessarily you know have the ability to 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 do that directly just try to simulate it as much as possible right be able to create a situation where even if you're in the room you're not talking uh you're not responding to those answers you're making them answer stuff themselves um the interview i did with eric lang uh talks about this a lot he talks about his process and he gets he gets amusingly belligerent about it but you know besides that (laughs) that, that, that's an opt-in uh but as much as possible yeah watch people react and, and watch them struggle with stuff and that's that's going to give you your best lessons. Yeah. Whenever I'm, whenever I'm sitting in on a playtest session, line that I always say right before they start is, you know, I'm, I'm the game creator. We're, we're watching you. Uh, so ask as many questions as you would like, be as vocal as you would like, and we will ignore every single one of them. <laughs> great. That's a great line. Uh, Okay, I, I I don't have that much time left here with you, and and I I knew I wasn't going to get through my entire list, but there's there's one more sort of meaty topic I want to dig into here, uh, and that is you know we've talked about you know the 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 creation process of games and testing games, we've talked about the importance of story in games and tension and how these things rely and and, and jumped across a few different platforms, which is all fantastic, but there's there's something else that 
I think is critical to making games that that last. And it is about building things that people become so passionate about that it becomes their identity, that it becomes part, they build communities around it. And I think that you are, are really uniquely positioned to this, you know, and, and you've succeeded in, in so many different arenas with it where it's, you know, people are getting tattoos and proposals around then married around the games and building these like very deep Reddit communities and having conversations around everything and, 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 and filming themselves with cat beards and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so I want to dig in a little bit on what is it that makes games become a part of people's identity? What lets them sort of build that community and grow to the point where this becomes more than a game? It's really a part of who they are. I have an answer for that, but I also want to tell you a story about that. The easy, the easy answer for me is uh, a, a line that I've thought a lot about it and realized I've repeated many times, which is games should not be entertaining. Games should make the people you're playing with entertaining. And if you can figure that out, the right way to deliver that, don't shine a spotlight on yourself. You deserve zero accolade for the games you create. You want to shine a spotlight on the people. And you want them to celebrate each other. And you want them to form relationships. You want them to interact with each other. If you look at the cards in Exploding Kittens, which is one of our simplest games, uh, every single card there, if you look at it very carefully, it creates an interaction between two players. Very specifically designed to do so, because that's where the entertainment value is. And all of our games have that at their core. That's really my design philosophy for everything I've ever worked on. Let's celebrate the people. Uh, every game should be a mirror and uh, let people look at themselves and look at the people around the table. Um, my favorite example is um, conventions. We uh, we have to show up to conventions because we're a games company and that's where you highlight your new games and make your product announcements and that's where the audience is. But conventions suck. Like, they're, they're noisy and crowded and there's, just, there's so much going on that you can't possibly attract anybody's attention. You certainly can't shine a spotlight on anybody. And everybody leaves, they go to a booth, they pan over money, they get a game, they walk away, they have no memory of that interaction because nothing about it was memorable and certainly nothing about it was interactive. So we, and we did that for about two years until I got very frustrated and we all kind of huddled up and came up with a better idea. And our better idea was, what if we designed the world's best vending machine? And there's a very specific reason that we went vending machine and that is to, because it would facilitate shining a spotlight on people, and I'll explain what that means in a second. So we built an amazing vending machine. It was about eight feet tall. It's totally covered in fur. It looks like an adorable cat holding out its arms to give you a hug. It has an interactive screen. It has buttons. You go up to it. You put money inside. You push the button of the game you want. The game comes out the bottom. And that's it. But that's not what magic is. The magic is that we inserted an extra button. The extra button says random item, $1. And when you push that random item button and put in your dollars, a truly random object is going to come out of it. You might get a pineapple or a toilet plunger or an origami animal or a burrito or literally we had 2,000 items that the vending machine was capable of delivering to people. And it delivered them based on a little bit of intelligence to make each item perfect for the person. If you're dressed as Link from Zelda, um, you're very likely going to get a sword 
out of there. And it's almost definitely going to match your outfit perfectly. And the way we did this uh, is we cheated. It's not a vending machine at all. It's a vending machine costume. And inside are eight people working tirelessly uh, to deliver the perfect item to everybody that walks up to it. And it's damn hard. And uh, it's the hardest job I've ever done in my life. But so much fun. Because what happens is anybody who walks up to that thing and they push the, the item, they push the button, the object that they get is like crafted with love. Now, luckily, we have a two-hour line usually for this thing. It is the most popular thing. The line goes outside our booth, down the hall, outside the doors, down the street, so much so that the fire marshal usually shuts us down and kicks us out. And, and, and not not just not just a line, but also a crowd of people all right. watching as people purchase stuff. I I mean I've seen this at tons of conventions, and and I'm I'm sure there's got to be a bunch. You, people can Google it and find it because if you haven't seen it, it's brilliant. And it is like literally people are watching other people buy stuff and excited right. and cheering. And, and, and <laughs> we've had people build bleachers to sit and watch. Two hundred people watch this vending machine, and let's be clear about why. It's not because the vending machine is entertaining. It's because the vending machine makes the people in front of it entertaining. It creates custom experiences for everyone that walks up. When we see um, uh, Danny Targaryen, Mother of Dragons from Game of Thrones, when we see her in line half an hour back, we know we've got 30 minutes to bedazzle a watermelon and make it look like a dragon egg so that when she hits that button, out comes a dragon egg and her brain drips out of her ears because that's not possible, but yet there it is. And we do that for every single person. And what happens is people's reactions, people's interactions, people waiting in line multiple times, people cheering, people singing songs, people proposing uh, marriage to the machine, that's the entertainment because the machine is just the tool set to enable that entertainment value by shining a spotlight on the person standing in front of it. So that's, that, to me, that's like, that's what all game design should be. That's how you're going to get people to celebrate. That's how you get people to get tattoos. That's how you get people to, to build fan fiction. It's when you, you celebrate them more than yourself. And in fact, make that the core of everything you do. So I, I, I love, I love that. And I love, you know, the sort of uh, provocativeness of the phrase, right? Games should not be entertaining. The game should be making the people playing entertaining. I, I, I'm, I bet that there's some in the audience that would push back on this, and I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to beat their voice here because yeah, sure, that's easy. That's easy when you've got comedy and you've got a, you know, a really funny IP and you've got all these jokes and you've got all these things. But you know, I'm making a serious game. I'm making a strategy game. I'm making a fantasy game. I'm doing this other thing. How does this? How, is this? Is how does this appeal to me? Like my game is really complicated. It's the game that's really shining here. How do you make? How do those games then become about the players and and and, and apply this principle? So I think I think it's definitely more complicated. I'm very sympathetic to that, but absolutely achievable. Let's look at sort of the mid-core game, for example. Let's look at Settlers of Catan. What is the core gameplay of Settlers? What do you, what, in your opinion, what is it? Uh, it's that the the exchange of resources between the players and that feeling of tension. Right. Yeah. Yes. Most people, I'm so glad you said that. Most people say it's a resource collection game or a resource management game, and they're just wrong. Settlers of Catan is an interactive trading game disguised as a resource management game. 
because all the value there is what are you going to trade? What did you do for trade when you backstab? You, you move the robber to my space. Like it's all of that interaction embedded in a strategy game. I grant you it's a, a light to mid-core strategy game, but still, it's a really good example and has sales numbers to prove it of why, why that formula works, right? Everyone who plays that game is providing entertainment for everyone else playing that game every single step of the way. And that's so valuable. I look at um, uh, the, the other category that I've just become so fascinated with is social production games, right? The werewolf mm-hmm. or mafia. Those games are not entertaining at all. They 100% <laughs> rely on the people, right? Like that's yep. all they are. And yep. yet, and yet, they're thought of as this this like new form of strategy game. But every bit of strategy creates an attraction between you and somebody else playing. I'm not going to be able to like look at diplomacy and try to break it down the same way. I'll bet someone much smarter than I uh, could, but. I would argue oh, wow. That, I, that's so funny you use that as an example. To me, diplomacy is one of the easiest examples. It's all player. Let's, it's let's all that player it. to player negotiate. No, because, I mean, diplomacy is all about that personal interaction between the players, right? It's all yeah. about that, oh, I'm going to make a deal with you. I mean, it's Survivor, the board game, in many ways, right? Like, yeah, we're going to work together, but eventually one of us is going to have to betray the other, and how much do I trust you? You know, but d- diplomacy is the game that I had the most fun playing that I never wanted to play again. Um, <laughs> because I, like, <laughs> friendships friendships were destroyed, like, entire, like, yeah. worldviews yeah. were changed. Like, yeah. to me, the, the, the mechanics of diplomacy, and, and I, I assume our audience is some of with this, but it's basically you know you're controlling different countries trying to take over take over the world and you basically all write down your instructions at the same time and it's it's just all about like did you get other people to do things with you and were you able to collaborate yeah, or did you betray point. each other like and so said, that one that one to me is like an easy case of like it's all the personalities and the reactions between the players uh, but your point is well taken obviously the more complex and 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 you know the more the more i'm staring at the board uh, then I that rather than talking to people, the harder I think it becomes to make it about the people. Uh, yes. I think would be the the, the, yeah. the the line I would use. I think that's true, but I don't want to drop the challenge. I want to say try it anyway. Like it's I I believe that your players will have such a better a, a more positive experience if they can walk away feeling excited, betrayed, uh, enthralled. Uh, whatever it is, if they can direct those emotions towards other players instead of at your game, I'm willing to guarantee they will have a better experience. Yeah, no, and and I and I think it's 100 percent right. And I'll just speak from my own experience, right? Even a, a game like Ascension, where the player interactions are very limited, right? Most of the, you're just buying off the same set of center cards, and so there's the there's the story of like I'm taking a card away from you or not. But the deck building genre in general succeeds where I'm. I'm in this hero's journey. My deck continually improves. I'm able to kind of build the strategy together and people can kind of see and I can show off, oh, look at this cool thing I did. Look at these combos I made. Look at this thing. And where you express yourself through the thing that you built. And even though it is an example of one of those games where you could just spend your whole time staring at the board, there is this element where my story evolves over time and those interactions come together over time. And those are the best moments and the best connection points and why people stay hooked. Perfect. Okay, I I know I I could keep going forever. I I have already uh, run past uh, our allotted time, so so I apologize for that. But but not really because this is this is awesome and there's so much great value here. Um, okay. So I I want to I want to close off uh, with uh, 
where can people find you find more of your stuff? I know you've got a ton of great, you know, uh, talks that you've given and other things out there too, for people that want to learn more. I, I, I purposely avoided some of the, the topics, which I've seen you speak very eloquently about elsewhere, um, uh, like the Kickstarter campaign and other things. So people can kind of hunt it down, uh, rather than rehashing it here. So where can people find more of your awesome stuff? Um, the easiest way is just exploitedkittens.com. And uh, we, we, I try to put as much stuff there as possible as far as how to find out what we're up to and where we're going to be. Um, the other thing is, just like you said, if you do a search for my name, Alonly, uh, you will find a lot of good stuff, a lot of horrible stuff, and a lot of stuff I wish didn't exist. But I'm not going to tell you which is which. It'll be an exciting <laughs> for the reader. I love it. I love it. Elon, it really has meant the world to me uh, being able to sort of connect with you and now have have two incredibly enlightening conversations. I appreciate it. I hope uh, very sincerely this is not the last of these conversations we have, but, but you're, I really appreciate it, man. Thanks so much, Justin. This is a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate These are great questions, and uh, it's a lot of fun to talk about, so let's do more. Okay. We'll be back again for part two. <laughs> Good. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.